Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by Sananda Mitreya. Sananda started his career with the stage name Terence Trent Derby, is an American singer and songwriter who came to fame with his debut studio album, Introducing the Hardline According to Terence Trent Derby. The album was released in 1987. To date, the album has sold 8 million copies worldwide and spawned legendary hit singles If You Let Me Stay, Sign Your Name, Dance Little Sister and the number one smash hit, Wishing Well. The release of a second album in 1989, Neither Fish Nor Flesh, was very different from his debut album and the music critics seemed eager for Sananda to release music in the tone and style of his successful debut. Although not a commercial success, the album has grown in recognition over the years. Sananda continues to perform and record music with the release of his 12th studio album, Pandora's Playhouse, and the documentary, Welcome to the Madhouse, The Costa Rica Sessions, which is available to stream on YouTube. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you Sananda Mitreya. Kissing like a bandit, stealing time Underneath the sycamore train Cupid by the awesome Valentine's to my sweet lover and maid Slowly but surely Your appetite is more than I knew Sweet softly I'm falling in love with you Wish me love for wishing well to kiss and tell Sananda Matreya, welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. We are absolutely honored to have you. Well, I'm honored to be to be here with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sananda, what are your memories of growing up in New York City? I was born in Harlem, which is in Manhattan, actually. But after the age of two, we moved from Harlem to uh, New Jersey to, I believe, Newark, East Orange, New Jersey. So I can't say that my memories are are extensive or anything like that. I I just remember more pretty much after we moved back uh, to Jersey. I say back to Jersey because I was born in New York, but my my mother uh, was living at that particular time or growing up at that particular time in New Jersey. So when I was uh, when she was pregnant with me, she went to live with a cousin of hers in New York. That's why I was born in New York. And growing up, was was music a big part of your life? Was the music in the house? I, I grew up in a very restrictive environment where if it unfortunately, if it wasn't gospel music, I kind of wasn't allowed to listen to it. But in fact, my first memories were the, of the Beatles. Um, I can remember at the age of two, hearing "I want to hold your hand" and "She loves you." Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And that's actually my first conscious memory uh, in this life, as being two years old and and running around the house singing Beatles songs. From that moment on, it was kind of like they flicked on a switch. Which I've always credited the Beatles for that because although I, music had been in my life, 
before that, because it was I was around it, that was when I kind of woke up to the fact that music was probably going to, to be my life. I wish that was my first memory. My first memory is crying for chocolate. Yeah, well, good for you, man. <laughs> Sananda, you were a champion boxer in your youth, a Golden Gloves champion, no less. How does one go from being a boxer to the army to being a musician? Well, actually, it makes sense because it was all kind of warrior training, if you will. And um, frankly, it couldn't have been a better um, it couldn't have been better circumstances for me to prepare myself for what I had to endure in the music industry than to have like been a boxer and gone into the military. Uh, it, not only did boxing, um, I, I was picked on a lot as a kid. I was bullied a lot as a kid because until I was about 15 or 16, I was always the smallest, tiniest um, kid in, 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 in school. And after 16, I developed a growth spurt where I finally started to get some kind of size to me. So uh, boxing kind of was something that I discovered almost by accident. Um, it was during the 1976 Olympics, which was a great boxing era for the American athletes. I remember Sugar Ray Leonard was a part of that particular um, Olympic team. And uh, I remember just going to the laundry room with one of my cousins who was kind of staying with us that summer. And we, we used to pile on a bunch of our athletic socks or over our fists and uh, started playing around. And I, I discovered then that I had pretty decent aptitude for it. And um, I picked it up after that, which did a tremendous amount for my confidence. It certainly earned me a lot of respect in my uh you know, neighborhood and in the surrounding areas. So that was good, as well as what time I spent in the military. It really gave me an appreciation for discipline and just being able to focus and get things done. And I, I think between those two things, the confidence that I began to develop in myself, as you know, as a guy, there's nothing more valuable than feeling like you can hold yourself up with pride and protect yourself if you need to protect yourself. And just that kind of confidence that it gives to your life and the respect that it engenders from your peers. Yeah, I, I I got a lot from it. It made total sense later when I saw how my life benefited from the discipline and the self-belief I got from boxing, as well as the discipline and the, um, the structure and appreciation for structure that I got from the army, from the military. And I can only imagine how much of a benefit that was when you did leave the army and headed to London. And getting a record deal with CBS, having that mindset of not quitting and you know seeing the fight through. Well, well, it just it just gives you such a a strength of of character, and, and you know certainly I I had gone to university for a year because I graduated school a year earlier than the rest of my peers. I had taken some there was some tests that the school system had given that declared that I probably. Uh, didn't have to stay in school for as long, and it was kind of on an accelerated um, academic program. So basically, I, I graduated school a year earlier than the rest of my my peers. I was always very interested in in the academic aspect of my life at that particular time. So I went to the University of Central Florida for a year, and I was kind of disillusioned by the experience because it wasn't. It was basically just a continuation of high school. And I hated high school. I mean, I, I hated my high school years. I spent the whole time being just depressed and miserable. 
And I, I, I had this assumption that college would be, a university would be like better or a different environment. And instead, it was just a continuation of more of the same. But I was mainly disappointed at how little I was actually, I felt academically challenged and just kind of realized that my hormones at the time were were more dominant than anything else at the time in my life. And you're surrounded by all these horny college girls. And I was just very distracted. And I had a conversation with my uh, parents whereby I just said, you know what? This university thing isn't for me. It's a disappointment. And um, as American parents or as any parents would tend to say at that point, it's like, okay, basically you've lived off of us for 17 years. So if you drop out of college, you're going to have to find a way to take care of yourself, which was fair enough, I suppose. I, I just decided that joining the military might have been a, a way to just get me away from the environment I grew up in and show me more of the world. And in fact, of the three years that I spent in the military, I can honestly say it was a much, much better all-around education and preparation for, for life than anything I could have gotten in university. And I'm, I'll, I'll always look back on those three years in the military with a tremendous amount of gratitude for the depth and breadth of experience that I got from them. Can you tell us about going to London and getting a record deal? How did it happen? Was it fast? Was it a long slog? I lived in Germany. I wound up um, being stationed in Germany by the Army, the United States Army. And um, when I got out of the military, I was already in a performing band in Germany called The Touch. And we were doing really, really well. We had won um, the kind of X factor of its time, if you will, a national German uh, television production. And, you know, Germany's huge. And basically, we, 1983, I think, we won the best new band in Germany. And so I stayed there and got my act together and got all the professional experience with this band that I could. Um, and eventually, the band disbanded. And um, I wound up kicking about in Frankfurt for a couple of years, just getting my cups together. E eventually, I wound up with... Um, a manager from Munich, which was about five hours away by train from Frankfurt. And so I wound up going back and forth between these two places for a while, while I was just basically, you know, getting everything together for myself. And um, he would go often back and forth to London because he had other business. So after a while, he finally um, wound up getting interest from CBS, who had already turned me down twice before before finally, by luck of the draw, he was uh, in CBS for the third time, pitching something else, another artist that he was affiliated with. He happened to be playing my music when an A&R person named Lincoln Elias, that they had just hired, literally had just hired, and didn't have any um, signing power himself. <clears throat> but he heard my music coming from someone else's office. And he walked in excited and asked what it was. And he was basically told that, you know, we've already turned this down a couple of times. 
And he basically pleaded with the head of A&R, who was uh, the legendary Muff Winwood. He pleaded with him if he could take a chance on it. And Muff basically, won over by his enthusiasm, said that, well, if you were willing to be responsible for it, yeah, I'll give you a shot at it as it being your first project. And uh, that's how it came about. It was basically every company in London of any note, every one of them had turned it down and, and, and CBS had already were turning it down for the third time when this fortuitous break on my behalf happened. So it took a while, but, you know, once it happened, it came together pretty quickly. Introducing the Hardline was released in 87 and was a smash hit, selling millions of copies. And at the time, you're everywhere, every music TV show, every music magazine, and you're still in your early 20s. What did that feel like? Um, like, as with anything, Kieran, the, initially, it it feels great. It's, um, But it also felt very familiar because I, I was always very certain that what happened would happen. I, I I very much saw that happen before it actually did happen. And um, there was even a kind of fear that grew up around, around me um, from the Cracker Company because pretty much everything I told them was going to happen did happen, in fact. But the rather unfortunate situation was pretty much between the first and second projects, CBS was uh, being bought by Sony. And... Um, uh, literally, it's this, the the cliche of becoming a victim of your own success. I, I realized that in in real in real time in real life because pretty much because of the success of that project, um, that was the final straw that convinced Sony that they were going to buy or should buy CBS and invest in it. But of course, at the same time, it meant everyone who I worked with to make that project successful were all being promoted um, to other jobs or being given raises by other companies because, you know, as, as the cliche goes, success has many fathers, but, you know, failure is an orphan. Yeah. And um, so basically from one project to the next, everyone that I had developed a relationship with changed, left, left to work somewhere else uh, or was um, given another position away from um, me being able to to collaborate with them again. And uh, basically everything changed almost overnight. Uh, and then as it became Sony, the, the ethos and the, um, the philosophy of the company changed from basically trusting the artist and artist's vision to, to artists being seen as just cogs in a wheel who were there to do as they were instructed to do. You know, Sony being a, a gigantic multinational, multi-layered company, whatever the uh, philosophy by which they ran any other division, whether it was the television division or the literally the TV manufacturing or radio manufacturing business, 
The same philosophies with which they ran Walkman, you know, created and made Sony Walkman, became the overriding um, philosophy of how to run the entire company, where basically even the, um, the, the, the executives were told that selling music was no different from selling components or selling hardware. It was all the same. And so the, the relationships change you with a new group of people you don't know. You're not the same priority to them. And um, just human nature takes over where if people don't have a personal investment in you, then they would rather focus on what they do have a personal investment on. Much like the film industry, if if a new president comes over, comes in to take over a film company, he may come to take over a film company when the film has already got a dozen a do, the, the company has already got a dozen films waiting to be distributed or waiting to be released. Films that he didn't make, films that he's not responsible for. So it's often very unlikely that the new president will risk his own career or risk his own um, upward mobility to, to put his credibility in marketing on films that he didn't create and won't really get the credit for, receive the credit for so often any any of those films caught between the transition of the old president and the old regime and the new regime will often get lost and swept under the rug, or maybe they'll even just be tax write-offs. That happened to kind of a generation of um of artists when we went from becoming CBS Columbia to to Sony International. And um even Muff and Lincoln and the guys who signed me in the first place. They were given their own label, but part of the provision of being given their own label was that they couldn't take any of the artists with them that they had helped develop when they were with CBS. So basically, overnight, I became an orphan and, 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 and had to find my way in this completely new environment that was just very, very, um, it was a different world. So the whole experience was kind of like, you know, one moment there is the whole world at your feet. The next moment you're like a stranger, you know, a stranger in a strange land. And can I ask you, like you're going from winning Brits and Grammys in 88 to then to this depth. So how would you handle those ups and downs? Um, the bottom line is that, you know, it was determined. I saw the writing on the wall very early. I, part of the reason for my initial success was I was trusted by the people I was working with to to be faithful to my vision of myself as an artist. You know, there are people who, you know, and, and I'm speaking from what I've heard from other people who who say that I changed music um, and had a tremendous impact on it. Of course, that only happens when you trust who you are and you go with your own instincts with who you are. Because as you know, when you follow a formula, you're not going to stand out from anyone else uh, because everybody is pretty much going to play it safe and play to what they think is required of them in order to be sponsors or, or, or given priority by these multinational companies who are much, much more concerned with numbers than they are with art. And that's one of the realities that you learn very soon as an artist very quickly is that you care about the art. They care about the numbers and, and, it, you become disillusioned when you realize most of them don't give a shit about the music. Yeah, they, so, 
It's almost like a production line, isn't it? Just get it out, get it out, get it out. It's absolutely a production line. And too many artists are caught in in a situation where they allow themselves to be treated as product first and as artists second. I was never comfortable with anyone else's vision but for myself but my own because my vision was what took me to the place where I got to to be known. Um, they, They were smart enough to jump on top of it and and not change anything when they saw that there was a magic to it, a magic in it. Um, but like I said, when it became Sony, they they were even more adamant that, you know, even the word artist was a dirty word for them. It was like you don't trust the artist, you trust the numbers, you trust the you trust trends, you trust where things are going. You, it just became a very alien environment. And the way you handle it is that you just, you determine that, look, I will have to suffer this environment until I can figure my way out of it. In the meantime, I will buckle down. I will support my vision of who I am. I will not sell out. I will continue to make the best records that I can make. And as soon as the, the gate opens, which is, allows me to legally be um, independent and not have to deal with these issues, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But in the meantime, you just learn all you can, you absorb all you can, and you just suck it up and deal with it because that's where I believe that my service in the military, my boxing training helped me. Was just, you know, sometimes it's like when you, when, you know, the the, the old cliche, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You weren't going to throw the hell in or take the easy fight. It was absolute hell, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. It was it was a fight for my life, but I felt it was worthy of it. The I, yeah. the basically the, the basic uh, gist being that um, almost 40 years later, here I am, um, still making music um, that's uh, being embraced by by tons of people worldwide. Um, I'm still here, and I'm I'm still making the music for my heart. I never abandoned that. And I believe that's why I'm still here because I always stay true to who I really, really was. Since the hardline, you're a prolific songwriter. Do you find the whole process of songwriting therapeutic? It's beyond therapeutic. It's, it's it, it includes that idea, uh, but <laughs> but occasionally, I mean, you know, if if I, I think it's important as an artist to take another piece of material that has come from some someone inspiring to you, and make that piece of music your own piece of music, or reinterpret that piece of music. I also do believe that for someone for whom to whom art is given so much, for whom music is given so much, I, I believe sometimes as artists we owe it to the music to expose our fans and, and people to music that has inspired us. And it's it's kind of like the taxes and the dues that you pay back to music. 
by making sure people understand that there are other people who have had a great influence on on your work um, and pay them back, if you will, by in, by doing that. But it's more than so. It's more so than being um, therapeutic. It's necessity. It's 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 the fundamental way that I express my right to exist in the form that I exist on the planet. Otherwise, I'm just another asshole taking up space, you know, with a bunch of bloviated opinions that don't really ultimately matter. So for me, the justification of the graces that I have received um, in this life is to put back into it at least a fraction of what I've gotten from it. And so I, I write because I must, because without doing it, I don't really feel like I have the same justification um, to take anybody's time up or to take up space on earth, except for the wonderful responsibility and the very serious responsibility of being a father and making sure that my sons are not as fucked up as I is and twisted is, you know, is what I had to go through. Yeah. Question for you, Sananda. You've spoken quite eloquently about your, you know, the, the hardship of that, you know, the period of the first album. And looking back, as Kieran mentioned, there was Grammy Awards, there was Brit Awards, you know, number one, Wishing Well, fans around the world scrambling for you. You went on to release, I think, three more albums under that iteration, Neither Fish Nor Flesh, um, 93's Symphony and Dam, Symphony or Dam, and Vibrator. But then you took a break, of almost five-year break, uh, and then 2001's Wildcard album. And the Wildcard album, the, the title of it alone, saw a shift from your previous you know, incarnation, where your fans now are looking at an album cover that says Sananda Maitreya. For the people that don't know, what was the catalyst for you changing your name? Uh, the... There was a three month. There was a three year period of time where I was in a depression so great that I didn't want to be alive anymore, and um, which is kind of a dangerous state of existence because I I come from Native American tribes who um, we don't believe in death. We believe that er that there's we believe in life and that life just takes many different forms and stages and shapes. Um, so I. I I don't have the, the, I didn't inherit the fear of death that we are taught in the West to buy into as a concept, um, which is kind of dangerous state of mind when you're young and you don't care whether you live or die because it's po possible that you didn't invite a death wish that winds up fulfilling itself. Um, as time continues to show, the, the rate of attrition in my profession is extremely high. Um, the um, the um, the actuary tables, if you will, to borrow a, an insurance uh, industry term, the actuary tables are what they are. And you know, um, my 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 late great friend George Michael, just being one of many 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 examples, it's a hard life to survive. You're fucked if you succeed, or you're fucked if you fail. You know it. it the, Everything has consequence. Great success has consequence. Uh, not having success has consequence. There is just no way out except it is the great Robert Frost uh, once said that I've quoted before, the only way out is through. 
And so I was in a period of, 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 of stasis for about three years where if you had called me the old name, it might even take have taken a, a few seconds for me to register that you were even talking to me or addressing me because I had become so depressed and so dissociated from it that it just didn't feel like it had anything to do with me anymore. On top of that, you having battles with with um, shareholders who are making it clear that although you might have been born with that name, they own it. Mm -hmm. It's their property that you created a property for them that is th that is theirs one hundred percent, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, and. Uh, basically, there's nothing you can do but either serve their vision of what that means to them, or you can just go and fuck off. Delicate like rain, delicate like snow, delicate like birds, delicate just so. There was during this this time that I was very much locked in a kind of meditation or prayer as to what I should do and what should be my next move. I was basically given then a series of dreams. There was about three dreams in particular where I, um, in the dream, I kept hearing this name Sananda called out in the dream. And, and my reaction within the dream would always be the same, like someone frantically looking around to see who this person Sananda was, because it had this tremendous ring of familiarity to me, as if I should know who this person is, but I could never in the dream find who Sananda was. It was during the third dream. I, I, I remember this very distinctly because it was these were life-changing um, uh, incidents. Um, about the third dream, I was actually walking in a forest clearing with uh, these three angels who were walking in front of me. Um, all the cliches of angels, the white wings, the, the white robes, you know, the beautiful flowing hair, and they were walking in front of me. And from this, in, in the dream, from a forest clearing, from the, from the woods, I was hearing this name again, Sananda. And it was like, like it was echoing. And finally, on, by the third dream, I realized, oh man, wait a second, I'm Sananda. That's me. That's me. And 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 when I came to this realization, the the angels who had been walking in front of me had finally turned around and kind of applauded, going like, ah, oh, finally, finally gets it. Yes. And I I've I've had a as a Pisces a Piscean. You know, Pisces are supposed to be the dreamers of the Zodiac. I've always had a wonderful relationship to my dream world. I've always given it a lot of credence. And um, I felt very strongly that this was basically the answer I had been looking for, praying for. And then in further meditations, I just kind of was given to understand that if I had found the courage and the heart to take this identity, it would raise my spirit to a new level and to a new life. And I would find a new life through this identity.
Um, and it would be something that no one but me was in control of. And it would be mine. And um, this is what happened. Um, and and but by 1995, I remember I woke up on New Year's Day and I called a group of my friends individually and said, from this moment forward, my name is Sananda. And um, it just, it, even for my friends, even the ones who thought it was a, the, a completely insane, it felt natural. It felt like something that was just, just a flowering of an event that was inevitable. And um, then a couple of years later, I realized that I was going to probably need a last name uh, or probably could use one. And then um, I had been reading a lot of, uh, of this writer called uh, Krishnamurti at the time, this uh, Indian guy. Um, and I was reading him because he was basically someone who um, had been a, a proclaimed a messiah and as he as a child and had been prepared by the theosophist, the Theosophical Society to basically inherit the mantle of the world teacher of the world leader. And that is basically at his coronation, where people from all over the world came in the thousands to attend his kind of coronation as the world teacher, he basically gets up and says, there is no world teacher. It's, 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 it's not about following anyone but yourself. It's not about following anyone but your own spirit. The problem with the world is that we look for leaders when we should be looking for ourselves. Everything is within us. Trust yourself. So he completely, in front of tens of thousands of people, denounced his responsibility as the world teacher and said, basically, fuck that. You got to do what you have to do. And stop looking for teachers. Stop looking for gurus. So I was drawn to this energy during a time in my life when I kind of needed um, to to uh, invest a lot more faith and trust in the vision that I that I was given for my life, and he uh, Krishnamurti said that there was a a being that would come to him in dreams and visions called Maitreya that he felt he got tremendous assistance from to find the courage to go out on his own as an independent thinker. And um, I remember thinking, yeah, this this sounds like something that I want to deal with as well. I want to deal with this energy as well because it was it was the right type of energy. It wasn't look for someone else's answers. It was look for your own answers and trust them because at the end of the day, um, that's the only real path you can travel. Is is the path of self realization, self actualization, and just trusted the the development of this spirit within oneself to be everything that you need in life and everything that will provide for you, um, you know, the the the, the re actualization and realization of your own life, and that's precisely what happened. So, I took the name um, as my last name just because at some point I was going to need a last name. And that's how Sananda Maitreya came about, was uh, through through those experiences. I can't see you when you're my angel, learn from my youth left behind.
Sanand, I just want to take you back to a question that Kieran asked you earlier on. He mentioned that you pretty much write all the songs that appear in your albums, but you also play almost every musical instrument. Is that a way for you to sort of, uh, you know, control the artistic input that you have on the projects? Um, I usually play all of the instruments. Okay, occasionally, if I if I want to work with someone else, I, I bring them in. But you know what? It it's it sounds it it is is a bit less altruistic than that. This is the reality of the situation. I've always heard my own music, regardless of who I allow to play it. They they're always interpreting what I'm hearing. It is not is not to be a dictator. It's just I I hear music very specifically. So when a song comes to me, all the basic elements I'm already hearing while I'm hearing the song idea. So. Generally speaking, for example, by the time I bring in a bass player from across town to then sing him the bass line or to to show him the bass line to play on the record, I could have already have have saved this time and this effort and done this myself. It's it's mainly expedience, but it's also you you asked me a, a question earlier about the therapeutic aspect of writing. It's just as therapeutic to have your hands. It's such a blessing from 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 God and nature to be able to make music. It's such a tremendous blessing. There is just no doubt that there have been many times when, you know, you in order to pick up your spirit, to be able to pick up a guitar or to go to a piano and just to play yeah. and to soothe, you know, music soothes the savage breast or the savage beast. To be able to do that for yourself is a tremendous blessing. And 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 stroke of good fortune. And it's the same when I'm when I'm making music and making a record that I know, you know, in many cases still millions of people will hear. Um that, that's a tremendous feeling of 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 the positive expression of a power that you've been given to create life and to create and create with and through music. This wonderful, these wonderful um structures that will survive you and survive long after you leave the uh, earth on the physical plane. And it's just such a great, great privilege. And I enjoy it so much. And, you know, but at the same time, there's the expedient aspect where I save a ton of money that I put back into the production or back into the studio. Um, I save a tremendous amount of time. Um, Work uh, w work that would ordinarily take maybe twelve hours in a studio. Um, I can I can finish and complete in six. Um, so I just work with my engineer, who I've uh, have a great relationship with, Matteo Sandri. We've worked together now for quite a few years on my projects. We have a great, almost even telepathic relationship with one another. We are in total harmony with one another. We don't spend too much time talking outside of um, just catching up with each other socially because we're on such a collective wavelength together that um, the work goes by pretty fast. There's not a lot of friction. And um, I just enjoy very much that part of, of being an artist.
and and so for as much as anything else it's it's cost effective it's expedient it saves a lot of time i don't have to waste a lot of energy on small talk you know what i mean yeah. and all that energy goes right back into the thing but i it's also a science that i have i have um put a lot of um energy into not making my record sound like one person is playing everything. I, I actually make an effort to sound like a band. And there are certain ways that I approach making the record that if you didn't know that it was one person, uh, you would think it was a band playing. And that's the effect that I'm hoping to achieve because you can often tell if one person is playing all of the instruments of the record, even if they're very, very accomplished, there is still often an element which kind of gives away the fact that there's just one person playing everything. And we can see that on uh, Pandora's Playhouse where you can see the mix of rock, psychedelia, soul, R&B. Uh, the title of the album would hint that your journey as a musician shedding former incarnations and striving for individuality. Would you agree? Well, I would say this, that's, that's, that's true. But, you know, the bottom line is, the, you know, regardless of whether you keep the name you were born with, None of us are the same people we were born anyway. Mm. None of us are the same bitches we were five years ago mm. or or two years ago. We we are parts and aspects of nature completely, just just as trees are. And trees shed its leaves and then brings forth new leaves, new life. Nature does this all the time. And as much as we humans have a propensity to hang on to the things that we are comfortable with, or we've come to with which we've come to identify ourselves in our lives, we still shed skin. We're still like like mm -hmm. reptiles who shed their skin, and you know are ready for to receive the next experience. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just like in America we have the tradition of spring cleaning, where every every spring, beginning of every spring, you go throughout your house and you throw out a bunch of stuff and you clean your house and. The idea being to let go of old energy so that you can prepare to receive new energy. The life of an artist is a commitment to always be willing to let go of things that are no longer feasible as so as to receive new energy. Brilliant. It's a constant transformation and, and it's the constant willingness to be transformed by the art, by the experiences and by everything that makes us what we are. If I struggle with affliction, it's because I cover with my contradiction. Life herself is habit forming. All of my nights were made for morning. Can I ask you about Reflecting Light, um, a great track, I love it, and I also love on the Avalanches, We Will Always Love You, it slots in beautifully there. How did it come about that you worked with the Avalanches? Um, I, I'm very fortunate in so much as I've been around long enough that a lot of the the uh, younger generations will approach me about doing stuff together. Um, of course, being independent, there are artists who are involved with with major labels that approach me, but there are limitations to what we can do because I'm not affiliated in the manner in which they are affiliated. So it sometimes presents logistical issues that aren't easy to overcome without 
involving a whole bunch of lawyers, which generally speaking, I think you guys would agree with me that it's generally a good policy that as few lawyers as you can ever involve in your situation, as little as possible, is probably the better way to go. 100%. Um, so that kind of leaves me in a, a situation where I'm, I'm only really free to answer uh, comfortably artists who are themselves in control of their own destiny uh, and have gotten that space and freedom, you know, from their own constituencies, if you will. Um, so I, I usually defer. Um, demur, uh, I usually demur uh, and just say no thanks. I appreciate it, but you know, because I'm often so consumed with other projects that I don't like to take on more than than I can passionately pursue at any given moment and satisfy my le my level of expectation and my standards. But sometimes timing is our greatest uh, blessing and. The Avalanche approached me at a time when I was basically about to start a particular project that that project became a part of. Um, I have great respect for them. Um, you know, much like the Irish, I have a lot of time for the Australians. It was a very fortuitous um, timing and the fact that I had great respect for their work and to start, let's, let's do this. Also, it was great because um, Robbie, uh, one of the gentlemen from the Avalanches had just overcome some some pretty important milestones in his own personal life. Um, and so the timing was right for him and I to get together because I was able to be of, of some kind of help to him at the right time in the right place to basically, because um, as he was coming out of his, his own tra transformation, he was in, himself involved in a a life transition of great importance to him. So it was just a great time for us to meet up together. We spent as much time collaborate, uh, collaborating and commiserating on life stories and uh, values as making music. The making of the music was pretty easy. They, um, we, we actually never met physically. Uh, in this age, as you know, you can do everything just uh, through the waves. And um, but we hit it off immediately. The project was uh, very, very, very easy to to do to collaborate on because again, we were in the same kind of space as two uh, spirits. And so it was a great pleasure working with the Avalanches, and we certainly kept the open-ended um, uh, uh, intention for our relationship that if in the future they want to do anything again, I've made it clear and we've made it clear that we would we would definitely agree. Well, I look forward to hearing it. It's a fantastic album. I love it. Welcome to the Madhouse. Used to be a playhouse. Prometheus and Pandora were right. But they went to war to weave in the score with the love for one another deep inside. Welcome to the Madhouse. The title is Welcome to the Madhouse. 
the Costa Rica sessions. It's streaming right now on YouTube, on my yeah. YouTube channel. Basically, the project uh, is a documentary about almost two hours documentary about what happens when a, a musician puts a live band together to fulfill some concert obligations. Uh, and uh, it's very interesting. It's gotten a lot of great response so far. And basically, you see us putting together, um, you see us putting together the whole project during the rehearsal phase. And finally, at the end of it, the payoff is the songs that we will be doing in the concert. You hear us do it, a final run through, uh, as we will do it in the concert. And we also put out an accompanying live album that's also available now on all the streaming services, also titled Welcome to the Madhouse, the Costa Rica Sessions. Have you plans to tour and come I'm to in, Ireland? I'm in the middle of a, I'm right in smack dab in the middle of, a, of my next project, which will be my 13th uh, project of new material. Um, I'm halfway through it. Half of it will be the way I've, I've approached my music so far, except more now evolved than the last time. The other half is completely orchestral. Um, I'm working with the Budapest National Orchestra or Art Orchestra. Um, 40 piece uh, orchestra and we've taken uh six songs or five or six songs and we've basically um made them into these beautiful orchestral pieces that was a very exciting part of the experience i also took another three songs and i worked with the string quartet here in milano a great string quartet called archimia quartetto archimia and um we so basically half of the project will be this wonderfully textured intimate orchestral chamber music experience and the other half will just be um you know uh, me kicking as much ass as i can <laughs> in the way that i have before and we'll put it together in a way that makes perfect sense as to why we approached it that way that's the next project and that's that always takes priority when i'm working is to finish those things before i commit to too many um right. other commitments but i have been talking to a irish promoter there have been many, many promoters that we're, we're now in the process of finally putting together a team that can address these various requests. So if I'm not out by the summer, I will probably be out by the autumn. Great. We look forward to it. Make sure you drop us a line. Let us know what's happening. And, and uh, without pandering, because I'm not really good at pandering, but I recorded Neither Fish Nor Flesh, which, which was a very, very influential project for us, uh, mainly in Ireland. Yeah. Um, in County Wicklow, and and I stayed there for for months, and it was one of the greatest time periods of my life. I had just bought a motorcycle, um, and I had the motorcycle flown over to Ireland, and every day before going into the studios in Dublin, because I was staying in um, Lord Henry Slaying Mead, the smaller castle, oh, yeah. <laughs> the smaller <laughs> castle, the junior castle, the junior street. <laughs> Um, he, he basically gave me and my crew for about three, four months. And it was one of the greatest, greatest, greatest times of my life. I remember dropping shrooms in <laughs> Ireland. It was just such a beautiful time in my life. I remember every every day before I, I went into Dublin to record at, uh, gosh, I, can, I, I, I can't recall the name off the top of my head of the studio, but it's the famous studio in Dublin that you too used to use all the time. Windmill Lane. Windmill Lane, absolutely. But every day before going into Windmill Lane, I would take my 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 motorcycle out into the countryside and just get lost in the countryside in the woods. 
without putting too fine a point on it, it was one of the most spiritually sustaining and enlightening experiences of my life because I I do come from Scots Irish uh, heritage as well. And you know, yeah. it doesn't matter how far back it goes. It just mattered to my spirit so much that a piece of me was back where I came from. I have such immensely fond memories of the Irish, especially even when I lived in London before, I would go down to Kilburn and just go to the pubs and hang out. That fantastic voice had to come from them Irish heritage. Now, we wrap with this question. Um, we're going to put you on the spot. It's last orders in the last chance saloon. You're down to your last euro. There's a jukebox in the corner. It's one euro, one song. What song do you play out to? It's, it's going to either be Rod Stewart or Sam Cooke. Pressure, only one, Sananda. We have to, you know, we, have to be, we have to, we have to really push on this one now. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> D- don't worry. We can edit out the silences. <laughs> okay. I hope it's not Rod Stewart. Do you think uh, I'm sexy now? That, that, that's just way too, way too loaded and and, uh, and rich. It is. It's impossible. A, a but question, but yeah. um, and, and of course, whatever I say, five minutes later, I'm gonna yeah, say, you're gonna regret it. Of course. Jesus, why didn't you say this other thing? <laughs> um. Uh, Dudes, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> there is a song that he sings with the Soul Stirrers before he went into commercial music. It's called um, Jesus Wash Away My Troubles. Perfect. It's, it's, it's a tough question, but if it was down to my last dying moments and I had just that one song, then I would want to hear Sam sing that for the last time. Fantastic. Uh, Listen, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for your time. You're so generous. Yeah, uh, I just Give want to Glenn, say... Tell Glenn, um, Matlock, I, I give him my love and, and uh, uh, thanks for what they did for music. Before we let you go, uh, from myself, from Kieran, from Mark, our editor, Sananda Matreya, when I said we were honoured, and I mean honoured to get you on, I really, really meant it. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And give a kiss to Ireland for me. Jesus Away my my troubles while I'm traveling here below for I I've got enemies Lord you know and Jesus was Away my, my burden